Well, no one likes to be judged. No one likes to be evaluated. But there are different kinds of judgment. For example, there's the judgment of the test or the exam that you prepared for in a subject that you love. And so in a certain sense, maybe you're looking forward to that exam, to that judgment of that test. Um, but no one likes to be judged interpersonally. Some judgment is welcome. Some is uh, scorned and feared. But God will issue forth many different types of judgment in the future. Judgment is a common theme in the prophets, and we've looked at Joel and um, Micah and now Zephaniah. They warned Israel of her failings. They urged the nation to repent and to avoid ultimate calamity. And so last week we began the book of Zephaniah, and for those of you who weren't able to listen or watch on YouTube or on our iTunes uh, through the website, I encourage you to watch that because that was an introduction to the book if you haven't watched it yet, but you can still track along pretty well, I believe, with the message today. So last week, one of the bits of information that I provided for you was kind of an overview or an outline of the book of Zephaniah. And so the first chapter and into the beginning of chapter two, you could see that Zephaniah encourages the reader to look within uh, because judgment begins at home. Judgment begins in Jerusalem as well as Judea. And then also look around. Judgment will also be issued forth against the neighbors of Israel as well. Ammon and um, Edom and Moab will be judged. And then look beyond, because there is not just judgment in Israel's future, but there's also restoration. And one day at a future point in time, just like Jonah and Micah have already communicated, Zephaniah chimes in as well and agrees with his fellow prophets that Israel will one day be restored and God will bless his people. And so that's an overview of the book of Zephaniah. But the northern kingdom of Israel was already gone when Zephaniah wrote. And his goal was to save what was left of the southern kingdom. And last week, we looked at the first three verses, and Zephaniah uh, records the direct words of God promising massive destruction and calamity of men, animals, birds, and fish. Everything will be devastated at a future point in time. That's God's rightful judgment. And implicit in that list of men, animals, birds, and fish. It's the opposite of the order of creation we find in Genesis chapter 1. And so I believe that's a subtle reference to the fact that God created everything. And so this is his rationale. This is why he is a legit judge. Because that which he judges, he also created. And that which he created, he also owns. And so therefore, it is reasonable for God to judge that which he created. He's not being mean. He's not out of his lane. It is his right to ultimately judge that which he owns and created. And so God will eventually judge everything. So there will be different types of judgment. There will be different times of judgment. This brings us to the basic reason why Judah will be judged unless they change their ways and unless they repent. And so look with me at verses 4 through 7 in Zephaniah chapter 1, and it says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the housetops to worship the starry host, 
those who bow down and sweat by, swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him, silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Zephaniah wrote during the reign of King Josiah, and King Josiah tried to revive the worship of Yahweh and eliminate idolatry in the nation. This was his earnest effort. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, in fact, the whole chapter deals with the different reforms of Josiah. It was kind of like the way a, like a dying person kind of rallies in the last couple weeks of his or her life and then eventually expires. They rally. Oh, maybe they're going to get better. Nope. They passed away. Israel kind of had that same experience with King Josiah. King Josiah tried to bring the nation together and tried to get rid of the idols and bring other reforms about, but his reforms were too little, too late. They didn't sink in. The roots did not prosper. And so here's a snippet of chapter 34. It says, in his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places. That's the places of false worship. A share of poles and idols under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Not only did he kind of tear apart the idols, he also, he also delegated resources and authority to various men to restore the temple, which had fallen into disrepair. And some others found the, the book of the law and they said, look, this is the law of God here that we found. This is... God's covenant to Moses. So this is the stuff that we're supposed to be obeying. So, hey, I have a wild idea. How about if we start preaching this stuff again? And so there were different efforts to turn Israel around to repent. But again, they were too little and too late. And so here in these verses 4 through 7 of chapter 1 of Zephaniah, Zephaniah records the fact, the presence of two different types of priests. He says there were pagan and idolatrous priests. And the pagan priests were called the Shemarim. They were called the black priests. And the reason is because they wore the black robes of foreign priests, of foreign religions. But these men were appointed by Israelite kings. And so the kings were part of this movement toward idolatry, and they appointed priests in these foreign religions. There were also idolatrous priests. These were different than the Shemarim. They were the Levitical priests who defected from leading in worship of Yahweh. So they were, they started out well. They were serving in the tabernacle and later on, of course, the temple. But then they went off and they rejected just the worship of Yahweh, and they also participated in leading the worship of the false gods. So he said, these are the two types of priests inside of Israel today. But then he also delineated three types of false worship. He talked about people who worship the stars and the planets, those who followed after the sun, the moon, and the stars, just like some of the false religions encouraged. Um, 
in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Israel is uh, warned to not do this practice. It says in Deuteronomy 4.19, And when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. So don't worship created celestial bodies. That was the second type, or the first type of false worship. The second type of false worship were those who follow the false gods, the false spiritual gods of the nations that surrounded the people of Israel, Molech, Baal, Asherah. Molech was the chief god of the Ammonites, and he encouraged child sacrifice. So do not worship false spiritual gods. Do not worship created things. But then there was a third group of people as well. In verse 6, it says, Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him, silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Those are people who were indifferent. They didn't care. They didn't follow after the true God. They didn't follow after the celestial bodies. And they didn't follow after false gods either. They were just indifferent to anything spiritual. And that was the third group of people that Zephaniah criticized. And so these are three types of false worship that kind of still exist today. Nothing's really changed Because we have people who follow after created things. In fact, you and I are very much tempted to follow after created things, whether it be our house, our cars, our position in life, or even our family members. Well, I don't bow down before them. Yeah, but in in our minds, in our emotions, in the seat of our will, in our soul, sometimes we kind of veer off and worship these other created things. Whatever I get my true value and my significance from, whatever gives me safety, that is the thing that I am worshiping. Yeah, but I didn't reject God. Yeah, it's not like you totally rejected God. That's exactly the experience of the Israelites. They rarely ever re- total wholesale rejected Yahweh. It's just that they wanted to worship Yahweh and then a whole host of other gods. And so there were those who followed the stars, just like a lot of people follow horoscopes today is an example of that. But I would even broaden that category and say it's basically anything that's created where we're tempted to worship that is idolatry. And it's a similar idolatry that Judah experienced during the time of Zephaniah. And then there are those who follow false spiritual gods. And there are a lot of false spiritual gods out there in the marketplace of ideas. There are the gods... The gods of the Hindus, there's the god of Islam, there are distortions of the god of scripture under Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults as well. And so there are a lot of spiritual gods out there in the marketplace of ideas from which to choose from. And then of course there are those are the religiously indifferent people as well. And um, there are the atheists, there are the agnostics, and then there's a whole category of other people that's probably the fastest growing group in the Western world. They're not technically atheists or agnostics. They just don't have any opinion on anything spiritual. They're called the nuns, not N-U-N-S, 
but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. They just even haven't even thought about it before because all they know is the natural world, that which is experienced by the five senses. They have no idea of the supernatural world, the things of Scripture or the God contained within Scripture. And so this was also true in the time of Zephaniah. There was a subcategory of people who could care less about anything spiritual. They just wanted to live their happy lives. But they would also be contained within those who false worship because of the fault setting for the human who has absolutely no opinion about anything spiritual, the default setting is what they worship is themselves. You say, that's ridiculous because atheists don't have a god to worship. That's not true. An entire nation, North Korea, is atheistic, they claim. There are some believers there, but they claim that the official policy of North Korea is atheism. But who do they worship? They worship Kim Jong-un. That is their God. So everybody has a God. Everybody worships something. Everybody gets their security and their value from something or someone. And that is what they worship. And you and I can also fall prey to that false idea as well. So the reason for God's judgment is oftentimes adultery. And I say just oftentimes because under Micah, the criticism wasn't so much idolatry. The criticism issued forth by the prophet Micah was that they were oppressing poor people. Okay, True oppression. But there was also one allusion to idolatry in Micah as well. So most of the time, the reason for God's judgment is ultimately and oftentimes um, idolatry. So Yahweh, the God of Scripture, is the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. And he is the only rightful taker and judge of life because he made it all. He provides meaning for life. So we, when we say he makes me feel alive, that is when we are most in sync. We are positioned then and only then to be truly content is when we believe that he is the one that just doesn't make me alive. He actually makes me feel alive as well. Not sports, not food, not shopping, not friends, not family, not money, not politics, not comfort, not social media, not entertainment. Those are all not necessarily bad things. They're all neutral things. Maybe some good aspects to them as well, of course. But none of those things should be worshipped. For us, it's usually not 100 to zero. Meaning, we don't throw God away. I'm not saying that we do that. We don't, the, the Israelites didn't do that either. They rarely threw God away. It's just that they wanted both the true God and the false God. So for us, it's usually not 100 zero. It's usually 70, 30 or 80, 20. It's not that we're totally rejecting God. Our natural tendency is to create and serve multiple gods. That's our natural tendency. John Calvin said that we are a perpetual factory of idols. We love to make idols because we want more security. We want more value. We want more significance. And so we're going to try to get as many as possible to ensure that we get those things. 
This is true for every one of us, even believers. That's why John in 1 John 5.21 said, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. If Christians were not vulnerable to this, there would be no need for him to write that in the first place. So the admonition is to keep yourself from idols. A man named Bob Chisholm wrote this. He said, idols are precious. They are always our hard-won silver and gold. That's why we prize them. They are beautiful but also contemptible. J.R.R. Tolkien portrayed this in Lord of the Rings. Everyone who wears the golden ring of power morphs into something weirdly subhuman like Gollum, who cherishes it as my precious. You remember that? So for Middle Earth to be saved, the ring must be thrown into the fire of Mount Doom and be destroyed forever. Tolkien understood that the key to life is not only what we lay hold of, but also what we throw away god is holy perfect and complete and independent he doesn't need anything or anyone to continue on in fact for his own joy he created people and things but in addition to his being holy perfect complete and independent he's also a jealous god in fact that's exactly what zephaniah says in verse 18 He says, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. God is a jealous God. But it's not a jealousy out of insecurity, but it is rather a jealousy not willing to share his sovereignty with something demonic. God has a problem with that. Thank you, God, for having a problem with that. And so his jealousy is not out of insecurity, It would be like a woman allowing her husband his freedom to look around so she wouldn't be considered jealous. See, that's how absurd it is to criticize the fact that God is jealous and he has a fire associated with his jealousy. It's ultimately at the end of the day, it's good for us that God is jealous. Amen. And so do we serve or fall or follow or worship idols? Whatever we get our security and our value from, check yourself, analyze yourself, do a little review. Where do I get my security from? What am I really trusting in to get my value and identity from? Where do these needs, these legitimate needs, come from? What fulfills them? It's whatever makes us feel alive. Whatever makes the serotonin flow, that's what we worship. That's what we follow. Zephaniah continues to warn Judah and the people who are the influencers of their day. Remember, he writes to the powerful. Micah was the blue-collar prophet, but Zephaniah is the princely prophet. He wrote to the upper echelons, the elite, the intelligentsia of his day. And so look at verses 8 through 13. Here it says, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fulfill, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail. You who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. 
who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses, but not live in them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. So the first group of people that he nails, that he reminds, um, are going to suffer, are going to be judged. They're going to be evaluated by a righteous God who created them and owns them. Um, they will be the princes of Josiah. The sons of the king will be evaluated. And who were they? Well, there was Jehoahaz who reigned just for three months, captured by the Egyptians. Jehoiakim reigned 11 years, and he was a wicked king. He was the son of a really good king, and it went bad with Jehoiakim. But he was defeated by Babylon after 11 years of reign. Then there was Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, who raised three months and was captured. Then there was Zedekiah, the fourth son of Josiah, who was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon. All of them loser kings, loser kings. You know, these princes, you know, they just could not hold a candle to their dad, King Josiah. And these were guys, this aristocracy, they wore foreign clothes. And so even by looking at them, you could tell that they were not true and loyal to the one true God. They wore the clothing of a foreign culture, whether it be Assyria, Babylon, or Egypt. They wore their clothes. They identified. They immersed themselves in those foreign, despicable cultures that worshipped after false gods and did despicable practices to children and sexuality. Jerusalem would be inundated with judgment. All of the areas would suffer. The fish gate to the north, that's where Nebuchadnezzar would come in from Babylon. That's where he would enter in to finally just destroy the entire city as well as the temple, knock down all the walls. And then there was the market district northwest of the temple right here. A lot of judgment would take place there. And then there were the hills contained within Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, and all the hills outside. That's where judgment would take place, according to what Zephaniah is saying. All of these places would be devastated. Your economy will be in ruins. Your city walls will be destroyed. Everything will be judged. The complacent will be judged. Wealth and homes and vineyards demolished. See, the prime people of judgment according to Zephaniah, will be the leaders. They'll be the first ones to get it. They'll be the first ones to receive God's righteous judgment, the beginning of his cleaning up process, because they dare follow after false gods to the deep detriment of the people. If they continued to follow after false gods, they would not be that shining city on a hill that God wanted Israel to be, a light. To all the nations, why are you messing it up? And the ones who are the most responsible were the leaders, whether they be religious, governmental, or religious leaders. They were the ones who were ultimately first responsible. They will be accountable to God. They are more accountable to God because they can do more damage. Leaders, if anybody, should know better than the followers. Remember in seminary, Howard Hendricks, he had like a card attached to his pulpit. And, and he told us about it as if to imply, you guys should do this too. And the card said, and it was a reminder to the person who was preaching, 
And the question, it was just a question that says, what are you doing to these people? <laughs> a reminder. So it's like, I think, what am I doing to these people? You know, a reminder and accountability to say, hey, the leader is really important. A leader in any context is important. In fact, James has an admonition as well. He says in James 3, 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And that's a good thing. So we got to make sure our stuff is true. Our stuff can be applied. Our stuff can be understood. So that way the people have a shot at obeying it. And if they don't obey it, it's then their fault. But you need to do your job so that way the people can do their job. Now, in a certain sense, you're probably saying, I'm glad I'm not a leader. But in a certain sense, we're all leaders within different relationships and scenarios. We have church, we have many leaders in the church. We have elders and deacons and pastors. We have teachers of adults, teens, and children. And Adam reported to me the other day, he said, you know, we have like 130 people in children's ministry. They're all leaders. Even if you're doing nursery duty, you are a leader. If you're someone who is in school, a teen, or even younger, going to school, you are a leader. Why? Well, because you are a witness, whether you like it or not. Whether you're going to be a good witness or not is totally up to you. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. You will be those who testify to my death and resurrection and the salvation that I've given to you graciously. So if you're a mother or father, if you're a husband wife, you are a leader. If you're an older sibling, you're actually a leader too. So I can say that because I was the youngest, so I'm not. I feel less pressure there in my family. But we're leaders in various contexts and scenarios and relationships. Lastly, Zephaniah depicts judgment in a battle. Let me pause here for a second. Because from verses 4 all the way up to verse 13, Zephaniah is referring to a judgment against Israel that's just around the corner, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom's already gone. They're already fried. They're already gone in Assyria. But there was still Judah left. They've already had some attempted invasions from Babylon. They've lost a few people. But they're still together. And they could still be saved from Zephaniah's perspective. Of course, we know they didn't. But there is, um, there is an immediate judgment in Zephaniah's mind. It's just around the corner with the southern kingdom if they don't repent. But now, in verses 14 through 18, he continues that thread. He continues that communication, that idea of this impending, very soon judgment. But then at the same time, just like Joel and Micah did, he interweaves a far distant judgment as well. So here he's talking about an immediate judgment in verses 14 through 18. And he's talking about a far distant judgment from his perspective. And so um, we can see here on our little timeline that he's referring to the judgment in 586. That's going to come in just a few years. But then he's also referring to this judgment that will take place after the rapture of the church in the seven-year tribulation period and also in 
and after the millennial period. This is the day of the Lord, these two periods of time together. Basically, a 1,007-year period is the capital D, big day of the Lord. We don't know when that's coming, but it will most certainly come because it hasn't come yet. Day of the Lord is a time when mankind is not in control. It's not the day of man anymore. It will be the day of the Lord. So he's referring to a small d day of the Lord when the southern kingdom gets swallowed up by Babylon. And he's also at the same time talking about this future capital D day of the Lord, a time of great judgment. So with that background, let's read verses 14 through 18. And it says this, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on that day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior will be there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like the dust and their entrails like filth. Remember I said that Zephaniah was straightforward and graphic? There's an example of that. Verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. So there is this future Capital D, Day of the Lord. It's a small D, Day of the Lord, because it includes Judah being swallowed up, but then the big Day of the Lord is also coming as well. Everything will be judged. Remember I said before that there are different types of judgments? The extent of this judgment will most certainly be widespread in the tribulation period, the nations, the system of Babylon and Israel and into the millennial period, the Antichrist will be judged. There will be a lot of judgment going on, but there will be different types. There will be different times of judgment. Some of you might be thinking, okay, well, John, when we read Scripture, you always tell us that Scripture should be asked a question as we study it. We should ask the question, Okay, after I've made observations, after I've interpreted it and know what it means, then I have to ask myself the question, okay, what difference does it make? Don't be afraid to ask Scripture that question. That is where you'll find the application. It's what in the world do I do with this? Because Scripture is a lot more than just information. It's information, but it's information that should also be transformation. It should also change us. It causes us to do something. James said that we're not just supposed to be hearers of the Word, but we're also supposed to be doers of the Word. So when I prepare a message, whether it be a Sunday school lesson or a flock lesson or a sermon, I run it through my own life first. I'm the guinea pig, right? So you've got to do application so that way you can tell other people and show other people what to do with it. What do I do with this? So this is a challenging one because it's like, okay, John, you're talking about two periods of time. You're talking about the fall of, the fall of Judah. Uh, we weren't there. We weren't there. 
That happened a long time ago. That happened 2,500 years ago plus. Um, then you're talking about a future time of judgment. And hopefully, this future time of judgment, we won't be there either because we will have been raptured. So, does any of this apply to us? Yes! Yes! <laughs> this is, we're going into sermon participation mode here. Yes, it does. Because if you picked up on my introductory illustration about judgment and then also listen to all the different types and times of judgments, there is also a judgment for you and me. For those of us who've placed our faith alone in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with your salvation. In fact, if you show up at the judgment seat of Christ or the beam of seat judgment, that's really good news. For that's for believers. You see, when we think of judgment, we think of the great white throne judgment. And that is uh, way after this. This is at, we're, we're actually judged first. We're the first ones to get judged. Even before the Antichrist, even before the nations, even before the system of Babylon, you and I will have been evaluated already. How about that? Try that one on for size, right? And so there is application here for us because since Zephaniah is talking about at least two different judgments, and we have to go through the whole council of Scripture and say, okay, what does God say about judgment for the believer? And this is a worthy thing to be reminded of. In fact, I think the last time I did this, I talked about the judgment seat of Christ, was actually in May of last year. I could do this every week, and it wouldn't be be overdoing it talk about the judgment seat of christ second corinthians 5 10 paul wrote this he said for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad judgment seat of christ and pick up who he's writing to here i'll say something about them in a minute he's writing to the corinthians this is literally the city of corinth this is the Bema seat where athletes were judged during not the Olympics, but the Isthmian Games during the time of the New Testament. So the judges would sit atop the Bema seat judgment and they would evaluate whether an athlete performed well or poorly and also who the winner and the loser would be. Like this very wise judge sitting atop the Bema seat. Remember, Travis and I went up there, and we were like frolicking on the Bema seat. Look where we are. We're also on Mars Hill. Look, we're on Mars Hill in Athens. But anyway, this is a little bit more about what happens there, because we tend to think of judgment having to do with salvation, but it doesn't have anything to do with our justification. In fact, if anything, our presence there actually affirms it. So it's not a bad judgment. It's more of an evaluation process there. So Paul wrote this also to the church at Corinth, uh, the most dysfunctional church of the first century, the Corinthians. And he was telling them this stuff. He didn't cause them to doubt their salvation. In fact, anything, he affirmed their salvation 
multiple times and used it as the rationale and basis for them to get their acts together, reject paganism, and become learners and followers of Jesus Christ. So here he wrote, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, mm-hmm, that's right, we're talking about the big D day, of the Lord here, it all fits together, will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, track with this, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through flames, because what Paul is talking about here is not justification, but rather sanctification or the discipleship process. He's not talking about our unconditional benefits of having been redeemed and brought back into a relationship with the Father. He's talking about the quality of our discipleship process, about our works. So church at Corinth, you guys are really messed up. You're dysfunctional. You look more like pagans than Christians. But I'm not giving up on you. And you know what? It worked. He prayed for them. He wrote to them. He sent Titus to live with them for a long time. He visited them. He spent 18 months with them. He invested a lot in the Corinthians in the chapter, in the second letter of, to the Corinthians, we see some progress that was been, that's been made. So this is kind of like your high school graduation. Do you remember your high school graduation? For some of you, it was not long ago. For others, it was well deep into the 20th century, you know, back, way back. And so if you remember your high school graduation, there were some people who had like ribbons dangling from their hat and their gown and they had like leaf clusters and they had medals and they were like people who were on the honor society. They were the people who were in the sports teams. They were the people who were the successful people in high school. And then there was you (laughs) or me and like it was just bare bones. But you know what? We both graduated Somebody else got a lot of rewards and awards, but everybody got the same diploma, and they graduated. So what Paul is talking about here is not our salvation, not our justification, but it is has a lot to do with our sanctification process. And so you will get a Stephanos crown, and maybe up to five, or maybe this is just a sampling of the crowns, which is my opinion. I think there are actually probably more crowns just like there are more spiritual gifts. And so it's very likely that there are more rewards. And this is what I want you to get. So if you've placed your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin, you are positioned to do well at the judgment seat of Christ if in this life you invest in eternal things, in service to our Lord, in sinning less and less and less. You know, there are sins of commission. We all know what they are. But then there are also sins of omission. Probably a lot of us are doing fewer and fewer sins of commission where we actively sin, like lying, stealing, things like that, jealousy. But maybe there's a lot of room for improvement in the sins of omission, meaning we're not doing the things we should be doing. 
like serving the Lord, sacrificing for him. This is what I want you to have. Our God gives us unconditional gifts, but he also wants us to experience conditional gifts. It's because it's the expression of his heart. That's who he is. He's a generous God. So he wants to bless us with all the stuff we absolutely need. But then he wants to bless us with the icing on the cake, too. He wants us to hear those words as we experience the reception of these wonderful crowns. And then we will also hear those words that hopefully motivate us during good and bad times in this life. Well done, good and faithful servants. I hope you have that that desire to hear those words from the lips of our Lord to your ears. I hope that's in your guts. I hope that's in your belly. I hope it drives and motivates you to follow after him, to be active learners and followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of our salvation, that through faith in Christ we can have eternal life. Thank you so much for the opportunity to also experience even more rewards. And I pray, Father, that here, uh, these folks in first and second service, and those who are watching through live streaming, will experience that at the judgment seat of Christ. All of the blessings that God strives and yearns to give to us, that we will follow the words of Jesus and we will lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.